this week on the Backtable Podcast. The procedure itself seems to be fairly straightforward and it is pretty well tolerated. And I'm I'm just going to go back to our paper that we published in uh, 2022 in the Neuro-Oncology Advances, where we uh, reported this retrospective study where we collected data from 1997 to 2018. And what we found was the overall, the biggest risk. We only identified 39 procedures where there was a serious complications. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. RADPAD was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. Welcome to Backtable. My name is Dr. Paul Bogle. I'm a consultant interventional neuroradiologist at the Royal London Hospital in the United Kingdom. And I'm also the founder and director of Brain Conference, an innovative conference dedicated to diseases of the brain, such as aneurysms, strokes, and the future, including today, we will be discussing the intra-arterial treatments of tumors. I'm here with two experts in the field, Professor Peter Walzak and Professor Prakash Ambadi, and it's our pleasure to discuss this now with you for the next hour or so. So first of all, Peter, could you please introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background? Hello, it's great to be here. My name is Piotr Walczak. I'm professor in the Department of Diagnostic Biology, University of Maryland, Baltimore. And with my colleague Mirosław Janowski, I direct the program on image-guided university here. And the main focus of my work is on improving efficacy of drug and cell delivery to the brain. Lovely. Thanks, Professor Wolzak. And Professor Prakash Ambadi. Thank you, Paul, for having us here. It's a great pleasure. My name is Prakash Ambadi, and I am the director of the Neuro-Oncology Program at the Providence St. Vincent uh, Hospital in Portland, Oregon, which is part of the Brain and Spine Institute here. So I consider myself to be a clinician scientist taking care of patients and working a little bit in the lab and trying to find solutions for problems that we see in the clinic and then go back to the lab and try to find answers that would be appropriate to translate back into the clinic. We focus primarily on brain tumor drug delivery, but we also have some interest in enhancing or improving uh, imaging as well as neuroprotection to try and decrease toxicities once we gave these drugs to the brain. Okay. And if I understand correct, Prakash, your background is not neuroradiology or a radiology background. You're actually an oncologist by background. Is that correct? (laughs) Well, that's true in some ways. I'm a neurologist by training and my boats are in neurology. And then I did additional fellowships in neuro-oncology. So that's where uh, I kind of fit in. Okay, cool. And Piotr, your background is more intervention, is that correct? Actually, my background is in clinical medicine, but after graduating from medical school, I focused totally on research, on preclinical research, and as you say, intervention, intra-arterial neurointervention was the main theme. It started with regenerative medicine. We were trying to discover ways to to better deliver cells to the brain, and then it it kind of branched out and expanded towards neuro-oncology. And so when you say, for example, you were trying to find better ways to deliver cells to the brain, do you mean stem cells? Yes, exactly. So it was about early 2000s where I started my career, when the world was all hyped on the repair of tissues. Brain repair was was one of the most exciting avenues. This is where I entered straight from medical school. But very quickly, it proved to be quite challenging. And even this very 
fundamental task of delivering cells to the brain was extremely challenging. So exploring various routes, direct injection into the brain, injecting cells to the CSF and intravenous, and then intraarterial was the most compelling. This is how conceptually it's the most compelling. And then over the years, we developed tools and techniques that really makes this technique effective for delivery of cells. Okay, well, that's so that's fascinating because that will go way beyond tumors and obviously recovery after stroke and potentially recovery after many other diseases such as uh, multiple sclerosis and who knows what else in the future. So fascinating research that I'm sure you've been involved with and, and probably another podcast altogether, I guess. But for now, what I would like to do, if it's okay, is um, start the discussion around GBM, so glioblastoma multiforme, for those of you that uh, are unaware of this. So this is obviously a, a devastating disease. Uh, essentially, it has as close to 100% mortality as you can come. And despite you know decades of research, there have been very few advances made in improvement of care for these, for these patients who suffer from this. Prakash, could you just maybe give us a little bit of a brief outline on you know the STUP protocol and what's been tried and things like that? Uh, that's a great question, Paul. So like you mentioned, glioblastoma has been extremely challenging disease to treat, primarily because it is a very infiltrative tumor, unlike, say, a brain metastasis, which is very localized. So the way I think about it is, you know, we take a handful of sand and drop it on a green lawn. We can see a bunch of sand where we dropped it. And the surgeons may be able to go in and scoop out that or clean up that sand. Having said that, we all know that there are tiny grains of sand that went into the blades of grass and that we cannot take out without causing significant damage to the patient. So when it becomes an infiltrative tumor, surgery is not curative. So for a long time, people worked on radiation and then eventually Professor Stoop and his colleagues in a multi-center large uh, clinical trial showed that adding an alkylating agent as a radiation sensitizer during the six weeks of chemoradiation combined, followed by at least six cycles of adjuvant timozolomide, showed a statistically better outcome in those patients without adding too much toxicities. Of course, there are side effects that can be managed. So that has been kind of the standard of care. And since about 2005, we have not really had a new medicine for glioblastoma. There are other techniques and things like that that have made incremental improvement in our care, but it still remains incurable disease. But essentially, if I understand correctly, the median survival, even with the STOP protocol, hasn't significantly, well, significantly increased. But in terms of meaningful extra life, we're not talking years, we're talking perhaps a couple of extra months. Is that correct? That is absolutely, yes, that is correct. Now, in the last two years, we do have more information on the molecular genetics of these tumors. So we all have seen exceptional survivors who have done really well with one or the other, or even for that matter, standard stoop protocol, and others not doing so well. Now we are beginning to learn that you know the IDH mutation status and CDK and 2A mutation status and those kind of things are certainly uh, important and make a difference in the overall outcomes, even when they get the standard Stoop protocol up front. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, even if we go back in time, I think there was a, one of the original papers by Dandy, for example, he said that even when he was doing hemispherectomy, this, the tumor would come back in the opposite hemisphere, for example. So that's decades old knowledge. And so I think your sand in the grass analogy is very accurate. And personally, I think of this as almost like a field change within the brain, like you do see with some other cancers. You know, like you sort of said, you need a, you need a, a strategy that will potentially be able to, without significant toxicity, could target the whole of the brain. So what do you think, Peter, perhaps if you could come in here as well, what do you think are some of the problems for the standard route, like intravenous drugs? I think it is useful here to bring the, the broader context of oncology in general. And actually, we live in a very exciting times when the number of drugs that are becoming available for treatment of cancer is growing exponentially. And these are some very smart and powerful 
techniques and immunotherapy is, is by far the most exciting. And if we look what is happening in peripheral tumors, especially hematological malignancies, the news is pretty good. The outcomes are improving quite dramatically for some of these cancers. But when we look at brain cancer, it's all these benefits of these new drugs are just not realized. And then we can think about reasons and there are we have some ideas of what could be driving this situation. And to me, big issue is access. The brain has to be protected. There are reasons for brain to be, to be hidden behind the uh, physical, anatomical and, and, and molecular barriers because this is so important and sensitive organ. And then if we need to, to get therapeutic agents to the brain, it just is difficult. And, and then these this modern novel therapies, the biologics, they are usually large size. These are antibodies. These are some maybe gene therapy agents, and they are really difficult to get to the target. And that I think is so intravenous delivery, when we, when we look at the, at the efficacy of delivery of antibodies to the brain, there were some rigorous studies done based on radio labeling. It's a fraction of 1% of the drug can reach the brain. That means 99.9% .9 of the injected drug is getting to wrong places and introducing risks of side effects and thwarting our chances for, for efficacy. So delivery, improving delivery is, I think, one of the key aspects. I completely agree. And, and one of the analogies that I often talk about actually is, is actually thrombolysis for strokes. You know, if you have a very large clot, the e efficacy of thrombolysis is very low. So actually what you do is essentially you give the patient all of the risk of the drug, but none of the potential benefits. And it's my thinking around the problem of the blood-brain barrier, which is what, what we are discussing here, early on here, is exactly that. We give a drug and it's almost blind hope to a degree that it will target the tumor. But actually, logically, often when we start this discussion, we know that the drug isn't really going to penetrate the brain. So we give the patient most of the risk and potentially a fraction of the benefit. Whereas actually what we need to do is flip that conversation around and say, we'll give you most of the benefit and mitigate the risk. So at least if the risk is the same or lowered, then actually we're we're now talking about more about let's say precision medicine so just coming on to the blood brain barrier how would you how would you prakash describe the blood brain barrier to someone like a medic or a colleague or how would you describe that and let's say its role in gbm and potentially in metastases and other tumors so like peter correctly described we all have blood brain barriers and if you look back into the evolution of blood brain barrier there were some rudimentary structures similar to the blood-brain barrier, even in primitive animals that did not have a circulatory system. So the brain was acknowledged to be a very vital organ and has been preserved evolutionarily. So that means there's not much of a change in the structure and function of the blood-brain barrier, say from primates to humans, or if you go back to invertebrates to vertebrates. So the blood-brain barrier's primary function is to keep the microenvironment within the brain or the macroenvironment within the brain a relative constant. Brain, I view it as a supercomputer that needs a special environment to keep all the processing units in a special room so that it can optimize and, and function really well. So, you know, if you think about it, very early studies, they injected a contrast dye into rabbits and then they were trying to look at where the contrast leaked and they realized quickly that the brain was one of the organs and then in males, uh, the testis, male rabbits, the testis was another place where it's a similar barrier but not as, as complete. So it was discovered pretty early that there is some kind of barrier. But then from a cellular structure, it is the endothelial cells within the brain that primarily form the tight junctions. And then there are some additional barriers, including the astrocytic footplates, and then there are basement membranes, and then there are other cells like pericytes that kind of come in. But the tightest barrier that we know of is the intercellular or interepithelial cell tight junctions. Now, there's also transfer of agents intracellularly. So selectively, there are some agents that can go in to the brain through the endothelial cells and across the, the blood-brain barrier in addition to the intercellular regions. 
And like you mentioned, you know, the glioblastomas, they've been very difficult, primarily because we are not able to get drugs into the brain. The other thing to think about the blood-brain barrier is it's not just getting into the brain. There are mechanisms by which the brain can pump things out. So most of the drugs that we have that may have some efficacy also tend to be substrates for proteins like P-glycoprotein that are essentially pumps that can, you know, if you give a drug that gets to high concentration in the brain, the brain doesn't like it, so it's just pumping it back out. So even though you get good concentration transiently, it may not be effective or the drug may not be effective against the target. The advantage and disadvantage of glioblastoma is that, like all tumors, angiogenesis or neoangiogenesis is fundamentally the big process that is visualized in the slides. And when you take the tissue, you can see new blood vessels forming within the tumor. So, And there's always a necrotic core in the center of this. So that area is highly vascular and also leaks blood-brain, the blood-brain barrier is leaky because the blood vessels are formed at such a rapid rate and the infrastructure is not good enough. So it's like, you know, contracting out a road construction to a shady contractor who just wants to finish the job and leave. So you're going to get a bad road. So whereas there's the non-enhancing part, which is the infiltrating part, where the blood-brain barrier is still intact. And as it was pointed out earlier, that's where the tumor will grow. And that becomes the biggest challenge, getting enough drugs to those locations. And then, of course, if you do get drugs there, how to protect the normal brain. And I also wanted to point out one thing that Peter mentioned before, and that is, yes, for example, Temidar, you know, we get only a fraction of the systemic dose to the brain. So we increase the systemic toxicities without adding too much to the efficacy of the drug. But in addition to that, if we look at all the drugs that are available to us, you know, it's estimated less than 5% of the drugs actually can cross the blood-brain barrier. So we have great, efficient, smart drugs to treat systemic therapies. In theory, those exact drugs should work in the brain, but it does not. And that primarily is due to the challenges we have to get the drug in and have less neurotoxicity. So I think just to sort of summarize so far, what we basically said is that the blood-brain barrier is a very conservative organ over time. It's been there since God clapped his or her hands and uh, with the Big Bang and uh, instigated life on this planet. And then, and because of that problem, we're struggling to get drugs across the blood-brain barrier. But even if we do manage to get drugs across, there's efflux pumps and efflux transporters that can pump, actively pump the drug back out so that you can't get and maintain high levels of drugs that might be efficacious against GBM basically into the brain without with also having the additional problem of uh, preventing significant neurotoxicity. So this basically, and we've also mentioned that the tumor itself has already spread beyond the margins of enhancement that you might see on an MRI scan, and it's hiding behind an intact blood-brain barrier. So basically, and this is the brain we're talking about, not a muscle where you can just carry on scooping bits out without, let's say, significant detriment. But we have many challenges and the blood-brain barrier is one of the principal ones when it comes to attacking the GBM. So Professor Walzuk, how could we negate the blood-brain barrier? What are the tactics and strategies that you're aware of that we could use to get around the blood-brain barrier and start targeting that hiding tumor? Exactly. And before I get into the techniques for how we can breach the barrier, one more, more note I would like to make is that often we treat this blood-brain barrier in a um, zero-one uh, system. It's either closed or it's open. And uh, we have some actually imperfect techniques of assessing the blood-brain barrier. The gold standard seems to be the gadolinium extravasation in MRI and T1 en- enhancement. And the adolinium is a very small molecule, easily to go through, much smaller than majority of the of the drugs. So there are, are some misconceptions, and we advocate that we really should look at actual drug extravasating. And I, I think it would be good to talk later about the ways how we can image the drugs. But before that, your question about methods, how we can safely breach the blood-brain barrier. And there are several methods, but there are two dominating techniques. One is based on the intra-arterial infusion of hyperosmolar mannitol, 
And in this one, the, the blood-brain barrier bridge is based on the osmotic shock and severing the tight junctions. And the other technique that is gaining interest, and it's, it's actually quite exciting, is uh, focused ultrasound-based IV microbubbles and a low-intensity focused ultrasound where the endothelium, the tight junctions, are actually injured mechanically by oscillating microbubbles. The two techniques are very different. The outcomes and the characteristics of the BBB bridge are also very different. So we still, the jury is out to see where individual techniques would be advantageous. And I think that's some of the fascinating research that's currently being done. And hopefully one or both techniques or a combination for various, at various different time points or for co like super co-localization or super drug concentrations right within the uh, peritumoral margin could be useful, for example. So I think there's lots of research to be done there. So Prakash, I know that you've done considerable volume of work using mannitol. So could you maybe just explain to us the procedure, where, where you put your catheters, any pre-mannitol injections or pre-operative considerations, et cetera, et cetera? So the blood-brain barrier disruption we're using intra-arterial mannitol has been used for about 30 years in Portland. Professor Newell kind of started this program after he moved from Texas. Over time, they have made incremental changes, and the procedure that we use has come out of all the research in preclinical and clinical models here in Portland. So the patients are identified first and with various tumors. And the most important thing for us is we need to make sure that they are not in imminent threat of cerebral edema or herniation because we do expect a little bit of brain swelling as we change the osmolaritic pressure. And we do see some transient edema because of this procedure. But having said that, once we have identified the right patients, and, you know, we have a very good grasp of how to identify these patients. We bring the patient into the angio suite. They get general anesthesia at this point because the blood-brain barrier disruption is technically painful because, you know, early on they realize that if you don't use anesthesia, it can be very challenging for the patient. So anesthesia is used and the groin is accessed and the catheter tip is brought up to the C2 level and then the contrast is given to make sure that we, the CT contrast is given to make sure that we are in the right position. And then we also ensure that the flow is adequate. And then we give the 25% hypertonic mannitol. Uh, it's, it's warmed mannitol that we give. Once that's given, uh, we give another bolus of contrast to see that the barrier is opened and we can see the CT contrast now leak out, whereas previously it was not. And then once we confirm that, we give the drugs. The most number of patients we have done is in a disease. It's a rare disease, but because of referral bias, we do get a lot of uh, patients with primary central nervous system lymphoma. And that's where we have done most of our cases. And we use high-dose methotrexate. Even though I say high-dose methotrexate, it is considerably lower than the traditional uh, systemic high-dose methotrexate. Post-procedure, uh, the catheter is taken out after the drugs are given, and then patients get a contrast CT right after the procedure. Uh, and that's primarily to assess uh, the brain edema. And we have a score by which we monitor those. So those are biomarkers by which we add steroids if needed. So if there's a lot of disruption, we anticipate that over the next four to five hours, they're going to have more cerebral edema. So they may have some clinical deterioration. So it is a well-timed and organized procedure. So we need everyone ready in the CT knowing that, okay, we are taking the case in. This is approximately when you'll have the patient at CT. And the patient is extubated post-CT. So they go into the CT while they are still intubated. And then they come back, they extubate it, and they go back to the regular uh, neurology floor or oncology floor uh, for continued monitoring. In some pathologies, we use two back-to-back -back days of disruption. And the primary goal of that is to kind of use the circular phyllis to kind of get the non-enhancing part of the tumor or disrupt the non-enhancing part of the tumor. Even in lymphoma, we expect a lot of non-enhancing tumor. So depending on the circulation and the location of the tumor, we can select which two blood vessels. So we keep one 
vessel constant for both days and then circulate between the posterior circulation and the anterior circulation on the uh, contralateral side so that we cover the whole tumor. So just a, a couple of follow-on questions there, if it's okay. So how, how fast, over what time period do you deliver the mannitol? And then roughly what sort of time period do you deliver, for example, in CNS lymphoma, the methotrexate? So in, to- in total, let's say, what, how fast would you deliver the two things and how long might the procedure be? So the whole procedure is about, you know, th- from anesthesia to extubation is about 45 minutes or less, depending on how easy the access is. The mannitol itself is a quick delivery. We give it about 5 to 10 minutes. And then the drugs, depending on which drug is being used, if it's methotrexate versus carboplatin versus etoposide, you know, we have different rates. Uh, usually it's uh, fairly quick because we can't keep the catheter in intraarterial space for a long period of time because of risk of coagulation and all those things and risk of strokes go up. So there's a, there's a sweet window. Within 20 minutes after the procedure, when we remixed, at least in the early studies, the blood-brain barrier was not permeable anymore to CT contrast. So that means it's a very transient disruption, and that does allow us to, you know, give the drug during that window in a window in a very controlled manner. And you know, in in all fairness, since the patient is already intubated. Cerebral edema can be fairly well managed if uh, there are, uh, you know, rare cases where they do, they do develop a lot of uh, edema. Piotr, I think you've you've done some work, if I remember correctly, on uh, infusion rates uh, and MR guidance of different infusion rates. Would you like to jump in there and just maybe briefly mention how the infusion rate perhaps can alter the distribution of the drug? Yes. So this was actually something that we were working on for 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 good amount of time still at the at the stage that we were doing the regenerative medicine studies based studies and we found that there is a very high variability in distribution of the cells brain circulation is quite complex it is supplied by four major arteries the all these vessels are interconnected in the brain, almost none of the vessels are terminal. So at any given time, the flow could be redirected, reversed, and uh, and that can confuse quite a bit. And for now, majority of the intraarterial injection procedures are guided by X-ray angiography, where contrast has to be given at a very high rate in X-ray angiography. You have to displace the blood you fill the vessels with contrast and that you get the all downstream arteries are filled. And, and, and then when you inject the drug, often the infusion rate is much lower. And there are a lot of factors that are playing uh, into the final distribution of that drug. There is streaming, um, there could be a pressure that you have to overcome, the catheter that you placed in the artery at least partially mm, occludes that vessel. So we found that the the distribution territory is quite unpredictable. I thought that is even more in the posterior circulation, in the basilar artery, where you have this, this perforating arteries coming off the right angle and uh, a millimeter difference in placement of the catheter will cause dramatic difference in a in a targeting region. So that's why we decided to move to MRI and transcatheter perfusion MRI, which gives us at very high contrast, very high signal, uh, we can see precisely brain volume that is fused at any given speed, even at the very low speeds that we like to inject uh, the, the drug. And uh, yeah, so that was like a big contribution, big of, of our group, and we, that we can understand, predict, and, and precisely deliver the drug. If there's growing interest in the intraarterial delivery of drugs and stem cells and everything else that I'm sure will come in the future, that uh, you know, companies such as Philips and Siemens, they should be able to develop 
let's say, on-table methods for, for monitoring where the contrast or where the agent that you're injecting is going. I think that would be a big help rather than back and forth from the MR machine, for example. Do you think that would be a useful thing to have? Totally. At this point, the way we were doing it was quite rudimentary. We were, we were looking at the single slice, trying to decipher the volumes and match versus mismatch of targeting. But uh, we actually founded a startup company, IntraArt, that was tasked, actually, with, we hope to develop a product that would help with the precise targeting of drugs. So there is definitely development that is needed in this direction and uh, I think it is definitely worth it because because only with this I think we can achieve precision that is required. Uh, so I fully agree with you and I think looking at you know just the changes that you're seeing with the angiography machines that we're using for example the on-table CT now that we can do for strokes the quality of the imaging is is far superior to what we had even five to ten years ago and I think as this stuff develops and um, there will be far more interest from the big uh, companies to look at what the next stage of neurointervention is. And I believe that this will be one of those topics. So just coming back to you, Prakasham, earlier. So you mentioned that you leave your catheter in uh, sort of l- roughly at the C2 level. Do you have any concern with regards to drug entering the ophthalmic artery at all? Or, or is that dependent on the agent? Or what, what, what would you say about that? So generally, we go just beyond the ophthalmic artery you know, just to reduce the toxicity to the eye. Because very similar to the blood-brain barrier, there's a blood-retinal barrier, which will also be disrupted with mannitol, and you can have exudates there. We did publish a small series of very rare cases, but there are reports where we could see worsening of uh, retinal changes as we go over many years. Or on follow-up, we see a lot more but none of them are translated to significant vision loss, even though we could see some exudates in okay. the retina. And do you think, for example, gentlemen, that there is um, potentially an option to look at, for example, temporary balloon occlusion to sort of stop the anterograde flow after opening the blood-brain barrier, then injecting the drug? We routinely, for example, when we're using um, you know, coil- balloon assistance for coiling, we'll, we'll routinely have a balloon inflated for five, 10 minutes without any obvious uh, detriment to the patients um, in the vast majority of cases. Do you think that that's also something that we could potentially consider as a, as a next stage, it, albeit slightly more complicated, but certainly not out of the remit of most uh, interventional neuroradiologists? Do you think this could be something to look at? Totally. I think that is the next thing to do. There is a term that we coined the extraction fraction. If we infuse a drug into gushing, rapidly circulating blood, you have this phase of a wash in and wash out. So there are multiple variables here that we will have to consider. And then the the dynamics, the kinetics of the blood-brain barrier opening that, that Prakash was talking about, that we have this window of relatively short time, 20 minutes or maybe even shorter, that the barrier is really open. We perhaps want to fit that window and then reduce the washout fraction. So controlling the flow will be certainly something very important through the balloons or if there would be a way to sequester the circulation by, by controlling the blood pressure, systemic blood pressure, you name it. So I think it's um, there's, there's a lot of stuff that can be developed, lots of new techniques that could be developed that essentially... Um, I'm sure we will probably agree here that the intra-arterial route is um, definitely something that probably deserves a lot more focus compared to traditional approach of intravenous and just radiation. So again, just coming back to you, Piotr, I know that you've done some radio label studies where, for example, you've compared the uptake in the in the brain of IV, I think it was IV radio-labeled uh, bevazizumab, versus intra-arterial delivered radio-labeled bevazizumab. And some people might be saying, well, if you can open the blood-brain barrier, let's say with focused ultrasound, why don't you just give the drug intravenously? And what would you say to that? Yes, so the ability to see the drug is essential. Without it, it will be extremely difficult to understand the clinical outcomes and explain the failures. So by labeling the drug, 
with radio tracer. This is the most, by far the most sensitive, non-destructive technique that we can use. We can monitor the intervention. We can look as the drug is accumulating in the target. We can then see how it is washing out on the acute phase. And with the longer half-life radioisotope, it is possible to monitor this uh, concentration of the of the drugs for up to two weeks. So that's really amazing. And pharmaceutical companies should look much more and use this approach much more. And what we did, we exactly as you said, we radio labeled uh, the bevacizumab, and the drug uh, at this stage was um, the decision to go after bevacizumab because there was the precedence; uh, it has been used IA before. And we found that system when we inject the antibody systemically without blood-brain barrier opening, there is barely any accumulation as previously reported. If but if we open the, the blood-brain barrier five minutes after infusion of the drug, there was no additional accumulation in the brain. So there was practically no effect. While when we injected intraarterially, there was a manifold, twenty-fold increase of a brain accumulation of this uh, bevacizumab. So that was a spectacular demonstration of the advantage of IA and failure of of the IV injection. So realistically, it's the combination of intraarterial delivery, and then we have to consider things like the infusion rate and the distribution of the drug, and all of these things, all of which still needs to undergo considerable study. But it's the intraarterial route plus the blood-brain barrier modulation and opening that will provide potentially the next stage forward. So it's not just the blood-brain barrier opening and then the intravenous delivery. It's probably the combination. And even more on the, on the stage of the design of therapeutic agents. Uh, right now, the focus is on on what is beneficial for systemic delivery. There are approaches to reduce uptake and increase half-life in circulation. We need completely opposite for intraarterial. We need something that will rapidly bind at, at the first pass to realize the benefits of it. So, so now we have to completely get it from the so many different angles. That's why we actually, with the colleague that I mentioned with, with Mirek, we established the society for image-guided neurointerventions because it takes a village to move this field forward, to move to do these procedures the way they should be. So completely agree. And for anyone that's interested, Piotr, could you just give us some information on that meeting and when it's happening? Yes. So the, as I said, the Society for Image-Guided Neurointerventions, it gathers the experts with interdisciplinary expertise, all focused on improving drug delivery to the brain and imaging. And this next year, in January 5th, January 7th, we have a meeting in Hyderabad, India. And I'll be joining you there to, to talk about some of my own research uh, with a combination of bevacizumab, uh, temozolomide and cannabinoids, actually, which is yielding some interesting early results. So I'll be very pleased to share some of those with you and the audience and hopefully hopefully bat away any difficult questions uh, with their relative ease. So, so, I mean, this has been fascinating so far, and I hope that everyone listening is, is keeping up and can understand that as a group here, we think that the intra-arterial route with blood-brain barrier modification can offer some hope, some new hope to our to these patients. Prakash, can you know one thing that we haven't really spoken about at the moment is is complications. You know, so you know patients themselves, the family members, um, the oncologists, perhaps people who are unfamiliar with uh, you know what interventionists do, they might be worried that this is is complicated, has a high risk, etc. What would you what would you say to that? Look, that is absolutely one of the biggest hurdle for us to translate this procedure. So there's this perceived fear of the complications and side effects. And a lot of it is just the unknown. And it is a mechanical disruption of the barrier with hyperosmolaric mannitol. So over the years, what we did was we compiled about uh, 4,900 odd procedures in about 436 patients who had multiple procedures using either intraarterial or blood-brain barrier disruption. And we looked at procedure-related outcomes and uh, procedure-related side effects and complications versus chemotherapy-associated or known chemotherapy-associated side effects. So in general, the risk for complications from the procedure itself is fairly low 
and it's very similar to a standard angio that we do. On the other hand, yes, we do have the known side effects from the chemotherapies, which are neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and uh, prolonged myelosuppressions. Those are well-known side effects of the chemo. So the procedure itself seems to be fairly straightforward, and it is pretty well tolerated. You know, I'm, I'm just going to go back to our paper that we published in uh, 2022 in the Neuro-Oncology Advances, where we uh, reported uh, these, uh, this retrospective study uh, where we collected data from 1997 to 2018. And what we found was the overall, the biggest risk. Uh, we only identified 39 procedures where there was a serious complications. As expected, there were three arterial dissections, 21 strokes, but those strokes were not symptomatic. Those were uh, picked up as DWI changes on follow-up MRI. So yes, we do, you know, after our standard angio, we don't generally go get a MRI on a routine basis. So we probably are missing those tiny DWI changes. And then, of course, there were there were some cord changes that were uh, longitudinal myelitis that we uh, noticed when we, the posterior circulation was accessed and carboplatin was used. We could almost completely uh, prevent that by giving a dose of steroids just in patients who were expected to go in and we were accessing the posterior circulation. And then, you know, local injection sites, problems, uh, infections, and all those things. So those are extremely rare and they do happen once in a while, but Nothing that I would say was more than the standard and use. Yeah, so, I mean, for those of you that aren't aware of the risks that most of us would quote for cerebral angiography, you know, personally, I quote a, essentially a 1% risk of a stroke, but in truth, it's actually probably a lot lower. When, when I say a 1% risk of stroke, I mean a 1% risk of a clinical stroke not uh, of a DWI, a small one millimeter DWI restricted diffusion area. And as, as uh, Prakash said, you know, you might see those more frequently, even after a, a standard angiogram, and those could be due to things like micro bubbles and things like that. But essentially what you're saying is actually that the procedure itself, if done well and done by people who are performing interventional neuro procedures routinely, probably carries actually a very low risk, similar to that of a cerebral angiogram. And obviously that will come down to patient selection, appropriate management pre and post, and that you can negate many of the perceived complications through appropriate drug choices and adjunctive delivery of things like steroids. Is that sort of fair to say? Yeah, I think that's very fair to say. We do have to follow the protocol very strictly. And we use mannitol for cerebral edema management all the time at ICU, but that's given intravenously. Now here we're giving hypertonic mannitol and it's given intraarterially. So uh, the biggest advantage of you know is that we will have a first pass and then that bypasses the liver. So what it allows us to do is you know, a lot of our drugs are metabolized in the liver and there's a very strong first pass effect there. And we overcome that by giving it directly intraarterially. And like it was previously mentioned, if we can modulate the rate and flow into the tumor location, we actually can expose more of the drug locally. And then obviously we need to develop smarter drugs. And then it recirculates and then we have a second pass. So unlike IV, we get more drug into the tumor. So that's certainly a big advantage. But I do have to point out that it's also important to note that we have the sinus node in our heart, which is very sensitive to mannitol. So what will happen is when we give the mannitol, it goes to the brain and then recirculates back as a bolus. The half-life of mannitol is very short because it gets diluted, but it gets back into the heart. You do see a sinus bradycardia happen. So we have to be prepared for those. We do use atropine just prior to those things. So yes, it has to be done uh, by protocol and with someone who has experience. And the right team needs to be present to take care of eventualities. But when I came to Portland, I had only read about the procedures and I was very skeptical as in how safe is it because I've heard a lot of things and it's brutal and all those things. And one of the first cases we saw, you know, I saw two days after the procedure, um, he goes to a nice restaurant here. He likes uh, crawfish. So he makes an appointment and he needs to be discharged before 11 so that he can go have lunch there and then fly back to 
where he comes from. So the patients are doing pretty well. And, you know, it's different in different types of tumor because lymphoma, we expect complete response pretty soon. And they are almost back to normal, whereas with glioblastomas, we are only expecting partial response at this point. So they may be more symptomatic. No, that's completely understandable. And just to come back to something that we mentioned earlier, you know, I think we talk about the the risk profile of the intra-arterial delivery and, you know, everything that we do as medics has a, has a risk profile. But one thing that I've, I've sort of struggled to reconcile is that whole brain radiation is pretty bad. If you are luckily enough to survive the, the underlying tumor, you know, your brain takes a severe hit from whole brain radiation. You know, that sort of almost seems to be kind of Gloucester. That's my sort of feeling. And I, and I don't really like that because I think it's comparing sort of making one one modality completely acceptable, even though the even though the, the, the risk, let's say, the long-term risk is horrendous, these people end up with dementia and change personalities and things like this. Whereas the risk profile, let's say, for what you're what you're describing and what you've retrospectively looked at and published, actually, if I correct if I'm correct, the risk profile is much, much, much better, at least for CNS lymphoma. Is that fair to say as well? Absolutely, Paul. So Nancy Doolittle from our group had published a few years back. Uh, she did a very nice study where patients who had blood-brain barrier disruption with mannitol and methadone for a primary CNS lymphoma, they were followed over time, and they got serial neurocognitive testing to see how much of their cognition was impacted. And what we found was not only did it remain stable in most domains, there were some domains where it actually got better. Whereas with whole brain radiation, like you said, you know, the progression-free survival is so short. And if they do survive that, the median progression-free survival is so short. And even if we survive that tumor, you know, their neurocognitive functions continue to decline so much so that their, you know, if it comes back, when the tumor comes back, most people don't get a second treatment because their performance status is so poor, they can't function. And the other way, you know, at least in the CNS lymphoma patients, we do bone marrow transplant as another way to kind of consolidate the gains we have made with chemotherapy. And that's not simple either. I mean, you know the side effects uh, and complication rates, you know, in some of the papers that we have looked into, up to 10% procedure-related mortality is reported. So you get a patient into complete response, send them into transplant, and then they have complications from that. That is... Uh, I think we can do better than that. And I would agree. And I think what you've demonstrated with lymphoma and what Professor Neuvelter and Professor Doolittle have demonstrated over the last sort of 20, 30 years is that this is a viable route that needs to be pursued. And as I think both of you have sort of said, it is a viable route, but like we need to think about the problem in, in a completely different way. So rapid uptake of the drug, you know, completely different way of like half-life needs to be different, radio labeling or some sort of tracer so that we can monitor where the drug is going. And, and by this mechanism, we can start to really provide precision medicine for people with uh, brain tumors. And that's in conjunction with blood-brain barrier modification and intra-arterial delivery. So just jumping back a few steps. So Professor Walczak, you, you mentioned earlier on that there's two mechanisms of opening or two ways that are kind of semi-standard for opening the blood-brain barrier. And we've talked quite extensively regarding mannitol, but the other one that you mentioned was focused ultrasound. And so could you maybe just give us a little bit of an update on on where things are with focused ultrasound? Because some people may be aware that there is, um, you know, people are using focused ultrasound now for uh, targeted thermal ablations to treat diseases such as benign essential tremor, and you're getting excellent results. People coming in, no need for DBS. They have this under MRI guidance, and then they go home and their tremor's gone. And this is probably just the beginning. So could you tell us a little bit about focused ultrasound and where you think that avenue might go? Yeah, we'll be happy to. Actually, this technology is being done extensively at the University of Maryland, where I work, and that University of Maryland is a center of excellence for focused ultrasound. So we have several systems for clinical and clinical where both ablations and blood-brain barrier opening procedures are done. And in contrast to the ablation, the focused ultrasound energy for blood-brain barrier opening is very low. If you deliver that energy to intact tissue, there will be no effect. So it has to be done in combination with intravenous injection of microbubbles. 
So these micro-bubbles in a low-intensity ultrasound will oscillate. The, the bubbles that are passing through in capillaries will oscillate, will increase their size, and mechanically will basically injure the endothelium. And the key here is to tune that oscillations to the level that they, they would sever the tight junctions, but without more severe damage that would cause blood extravasations. And that was the key task that it was difficult to achieve for many years. But now with more sophisticated techniques of monitoring the energy that is delivered locally, it is now possible also clinically. There, are many pa there were many patients that were already treated with focus ultrasound. An advantage of this technique that you can select any brain region with high precision and you can define borders of that blood-brain barrier opening. And theoretically, you can it has not been done yet, but we are working towards this end, now preclinically, to combine a focused ultrasound with intra-arterial administration. The big difference here is that it seems that the opening is much longer. Opposite to 5 to 20 minutes for osmotic, now the barrier stays open for a day, two days, or sometimes even a week which could be a problem, but it could be a, an advantage for systemic delivery. Definitely, you will have more time for the drug to extravasate. For intraarterial, maybe not, but maybe you have a greater opening, greater pores that would allow you to push across larger molecules. So definitely, that's the technology we have on the radar, and there could be a great combination with intraarterial administration. And from my understanding at the moment, most of the focused ultrasound systems, the low energy ones that you've mentioned for opening the blood brain barrier, those are MRI guided. But one thing that I was wondering about nowadays is with the new angiographic machines, the systems, could we use angiofusion techniques so that we could deliver the drugs intraarterially after doing an MRI and defining the scope of where we wanted to open the blood brain barrier, transfer the patient over to the angio suite, and then open the blood-brain barrier in the angiography suite and then directly deliver the, the drugs? Do you think that's feasible or do you think it would be better to have MRI-compatible catheters like the cardiologists have nowadays? It might be feasible. It, it, I think these both approaches should go in parallel, that we can continue performing intraarterial guiding intraarterial interventions with, with X-ray and introduce focus ultrasound as long as you can map and uh, guide this focus ultrasound beam. And it, it should be, I cannot see reason why not. But on the other hand, there is an effort to perform catheter guidance and navigation under MRI. And then maybe you don't need to have x-ray at all and everything could be done in MRI. Of course, there are restrictions and safety considerations, but that would be also very useful because MRI gives you so much information, soft tissue contrast, blood-brain barrier status. And if you combine this with a PET, with a PET MR systems, now you, can, you could navigate the catheter, open the blood-brain barrier, and, uh, verify it, and then inject radio-labeled drug, dosing it to the target dose, the tumor. So, and the interesting thing is, is nearly all of this technology either already exists or is in very close approximation to coming into existence for the neurosphere. And so actually all we really need to do is perhaps nudge a few companies and look at a few other people to sort of poke, as it were, to try and get them interested in this and and for for me personally i think there's been as a, as we discussed at the very beginning there's been such little advancement in the treatment of most cns tumors that actually you would hope that the companies and the governments in fact and and uh, charities around the world would be very open to any sort of uh, novel way to start tackling this burden I think I, I know that Prakash, there's, I believe that there's a, a setup in the US, which is uh, maybe the blood brain barrier consortium or something. Yes. So we have a blood brain barrier consortium that has had consecutive meetings for 25 years. And at the beginning of the pandemic, we kind of disbanded in the sense that we don't have the meeting anymore. So we are revisiting and trying to figure out what would be the 
the next steps to kind of expand those meetings back and get it back on the calendar. Obviously, like you said, you know, funding from national agencies like NIH and NHS is vital. A European Union is vital. But more importantly, you know, charities and philanthropic support is what uh, keeps uh, these programs running. We do have to kind of think beyond the tumors and think about blood-brain barrier disruption as an opportunity for us to get drugs in and potentially think the opening the barrier may also improve getting things out. So the opportunities are there. And uh, especially in Alzheimer's disease and things like that, there's been a lot of at least concepts where by opening the barrier, can we get more of the plaques out and things like that. So there are people are looking into those things. That was actually going to be one of my follow-on questions. And as we discussed at Brain Conference, where, um, you know, I suggested, and certainly with the present audience, it's nothing new, but to most people, what we are discussing here, even to most interventionists and most oncologists, this is this is groundbreaking, quite novel stuff that we're discussing. It's certainly not mainstream at the moment. And I liken this to mechanical thrombectomy in sort of 2007, 2008, where there were a few pioneers like yourselves who were pushing it and saying, look, we're seeing interesting results. We're not quite sure what, what it means. We're not quite sure exactly how this is going to pan out, but we need to look at this. And that's where I equate both of you gentlemen with, with regards to where we are and where we are with intra-arterial therapies. And again, just coming back, I think Professor Walzak, you started some work on infections and things like this, uh, hiding behind the blood-brain barrier. So where do you think that this modulation of blood-brain barrier and intra-arterial treatments could potentially go? So one thing that I want to mention and the challenge that, that we, we started to address is that if you inject the drug intra-arterially, you have this so very narrow opportunity. You have minutes to deliver the drug and then this at the time that you are infusing into the artery the concentration gradients works to your advantage but as soon as you stop infusing that reverses so we really have to think how to maximize this small window of opportunity and extend the effect far beyond that very narrow window of few minutes that we are infusing and that actually come, the, the, my, my background in, in cell therapy and cell delivery comes handy because now you can think about using cells as drug factories. There are very smart and sophisticated ways of engineering cells. And then the pandemic brought something quite cool is that you can use mRNA now to engineer cells for a short period of time. You can use adenoviruses to, use, to have that mid-range, or you can permanently modify the cell. So you have a lot of flexibility of encoding the drug and having the drug, is it antibody, nanobody, or even oncolytic viruses that you can infuse intra-arterially and the cells, once they get in, even if there is a small fraction of the cells that goes through, these effects are being amplified and they work over time. And this strategy, now I try to exploit in a few different directions. One is in HIV, where cells are injected to produce antibody that neutralizes HIV virus. I have another, one project in, for stroke, where we engineered glial progenitor cells to produce inflammation modulator, P2X7 receptor blocker, that over over certain period of time after acute stroke, this acute inflammation, which is actually damaging, could be reduced, and also similar approach in traumatic brain injury. So there are all these opportunities that we should uh, keep our eyes open and try to implement them together with intra-arterial interventions. So basically, I think, again, we can probably all agree that the intra-arterial drug delivery route or cell delivery route and blood-brain barrier modification actually represent perhaps one of the final stages, let's say, for interventional neuroradiology. It's, you know, I don't want to sound too much like a, a Trekkie, even though I probably am, but it's one of the final frontiers. So I think it would be, I think this space is very, very exciting, not only as someone that's in it, but as someone, let's say, that suffered from it as well. And also the people who for the people who can benefit from this, which are, by the sounds of things, 
actually a huge proportion of people if we're talking about going forward not just blood brain barrier modification for tumors but maybe for difficult to treat diseases ms stuff like this what about alzheimer's as we've mentioned you know some of the other diseases like parkinson's etc we're talking about a very 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 large number of people that could benefit from probably a treatment that doesn't carry much of a side effect profile greater than a catheter angiogram which we do routinely for people having strokes and treatment of aneurysms with good effect is that is that fair to say i totally agree you know this procedure can be repeated so for when i talk about tumors you know there's always this number of cycles so six cycles or 12 cycles so since it's a fairly straightforward procedure they can come back and get these chemos again and again with fair, you know, reasonable side effect profile. That is a huge advantage in my opinion. And there's another interesting aspect of it. So when we open the barrier, there is also a sterile inflammation that happens around it. And that may actually, you know, favor, you know, the cellular therapies, at least the CAR T cell therapies that uh, are similar therapies uh, that can, you know, that has shown benefit in systemic tumors, but not in the brain because of the immunosuppressive microenvironment in the brain because of the microglia and all those things. So by creating an artificial inflammation, a sterile inflammation, we may be able to get and then get the cells intraarterially. We may actually have a big advantage there. So we're sort of double hit almost. Exactly. Multiple modalities of action, some using drugs, some using the body's innate systems to improve the environment, basically the microenvironment and attack the tumor or whatever other disease is going on. Well, I mean, gentlemen, this has been a fascinating conversation, just like it was at Brain Conference. Are there any final things that you'd like to add, perhaps? We've already gone uh, quite far, (laughs) past an hour. Is there anything final that you'd like to say? I think this is exciting direction. We still have our homework, and as you said, to convince others that it's not easy, but it's not that risky that uh, people think and honestly I just don't think there is other there are many other options if uh, of course if intravenous therapies would work it everybody would be happy pharmaceutical companies would be happy patients would be happy but it simply doesn't work so I don't think we have much choice we have to invest we have to work towards this end of image guided intraarterial neuro interventions for to make them effective and reproducible I completely agree. And I think, you know, I, I certainly say to my colleagues, I say, look, I'd love to not get called and pull out a clot at three o'clock in the morning. If there was a drug that could be delivered in an ambulance, please, I would prefer this personally and I would prefer it for my patients. Unfortunately, that miracle drug doesn't exist. So for the time being, I'm fishing out clots from people's heads. You know, ultimately, our goal here, all of us as doctors, is to do the thing that offers the most benefit to our patients with the least risk, the most benefit, and with the least disruption to their lives is how I would potentially argue good medical practice should be. And if that if that involves an IV drug or an IA drug or a you know a focused ultrasound treatment, then so be it. And that's just the nature of science and progress. Prakash, is there anything you'd like to, to sort of jump in and say at the end? You know, as a person taking care of brain tumors, you know, I consider myself an eternal optimist. And I'm hopeful that we will pursue and, you know, persist. And hopefully this technology, like you said, not just intraarterial, be it a focused ultrasound or radiation-enhanced delivery, whatever are, are better drugs for that matter that can have better delivery to the brain. Ultimately, we want what's best for our patients and improve their quality of life. And as we develop this program or these techniques, we do need to focus on three things. One is enhanced delivery. Second one is biomarkers, like what's being done by Dr. Walczak. You know, we need to have better markers to know that we got the drug in. And then third thing, we need to look at safety and neuroprotection so that we don't cause more harm than they already are or more trouble than they already are in. And that's both long and short-term risk profiles, really, as we were discussing earlier with, with regards to uh, whole brain radiation. There's no point in having a short-term win for a long-term massive loss would be my argument. But uh, but no, I, I sort of fully agree with you there. Personally, my some of my own research is looking at optimizing combinations of drugs, some of which you know might be best delivered through intra-arterial route, 
and trying to find synergistic mechanisms of action. So hopefully I'll be discussing some of that at the SIGN conference um, next year in, uh, in January. And I think, gentlemen, that's probably the end of the discussion, at least this time around. Uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, seeing you and discussing with you again and learning from you. I hope that the audience has heard everything that you've had to say with such eloquence and passion. And hopefully we can get more people interested in this and get them over to Brain Conference, get them over to Sign and get them in, involved in the Blood Brain Barrier Consortium. I think I've, I've given you a bit of a, a nudge to get that back up and running for a car. Yes, I will. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Anne Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 